0: Fantastic. So yeah, thanks um, for the topic, Josh. Um, This is a subject that, um, let's be honest, the church hasn't done brilliantly well on um, over the last um, number of years. If you're here this evening and you've ever been hurt by this church or any expression of the church in terms of the way we have grappled and dealt with this subject then can I start by saying I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you've ever felt rejected, if you've ever felt pain, if you've ever felt confusion, um, if you've ever felt shame and not being able to talk openly and honestly, I'm sorry, because that's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a people who, first and foremost, are characterized by the love and acceptance of Jesus Christ. That's our desire. That's our goal. Um, Jesus is the perfect demonstration of God's love. But nevertheless, Jesus had things to say about sexuality. Um, God created all of us as sexual beings, He created all of us with sexual desire to one extent or another. Um, And so there are all kinds of questions that arise for us about how we're supposed to live um, as Christians, as faithful followers of Jesus. So we'll start. I've got like 10 minutes or so, because not only did he give me like one of the most complex and challenging subjects that exists for a Christian leader to talk about, but he said, I want you to do it in 10 minutes. So um, we may just rush slightly, then I'm going to give you a question to think about, uh, and then you're going to talk about that a bit, and then I'll just kind of round up. So please do not think that I'm going to try and say everything there is to say about this subject, but hopefully it just kind of gets us thinking um, about what God might have to say to us. So Matthew chapter 19 and verses 1 to 6, Matthew 19, 1 to 6. And the two will become one flesh. And so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus was Jewish, and he did not come to overturn everything about the Jewish law. What we have to remember is a lot of what Jesus teaches, a lot of what he says is against the backdrop of certain assumptions of people's understanding because he came first to the Jews and he taught to the Jews and he explained the gospel to the Jews. Now, yes, we know from Jesus' ministry that it was always his desire that that ministry would expand beyond the Jewish people, that the gospel is for all people, all kinds of people with no barriers or distinctions. Um, But he spoke into a Jewish context. And so there were certain things that that all Jewish people would have known and understood about the law. Uh, And so there are passages in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 that specifically deal with all kinds of sexual ethics. All kinds of people that you are and aren't allowed to have sex with. You know, so you aren't allowed in Leviticus 18 and 20. um, A man is not allowed to have sex with his daughter. Um, A a person is not allowed to have sex with an animal. There's all kinds of rules about who people can and can't have sex with. And included in that list is um, a man cannot have sex with a man. Okay, So that's as part of the sexual ethic that Jesus would have just accepted as normal. This was the law that had been taught. This was part of their society. Now, Jesus had an interesting relationship with the law. And he said very clearly that I haven't come to do away with the law, but rather I've come to fulfill the law. So there are certain ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that we no longer feel the need to insist upon and observe today um, because we see that they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, for example, certain laws about keeping yourself pure by not eating certain types of animals, we say, well, Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of the law. All our purity comes from Jesus. Therefore, we don't have to follow these ritual purification laws and things like that anymore. And so many of us may have enjoyed um, a bacon sandwich for breakfast this morning um, with, I didn't by the way, just in case you're jealous, but you know, it would be okay if you did. Jesus declared all foods um, clean because he'd fulfilled the law. So it wasn't that he was coming to say, do you know what, actually the law's a bit rubbish. It's a bit hard. Um, I feel like I need to modernize the church my father's been in charge for a while now, but I'm the new generation, and so I'm going to just kind of relax a few of these over-the-top kind of rules that the father had. Not at all. He came to fulfill the law. Okay? Now what's interesting is that Jesus is still concerned with sexual ethics. So he's still concerned with the nature of marriage He's still concerned with the fact that for Jesus, and he quotes back to the Old Testament, and he quotes and he says, a man will leave his father and his mother and he'll be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. So at the heart of this whole discussion for us is the nature of marriage itself. What we need to understand is that the sexual ethic of the Bible is that the place for the expression of sexuality is within a covenant of marriage. That that covenant speaks of the joining together of two people to become one flesh. And that covenant, the Bible tells us, is supposed to represent or portray something of what happens between Jesus and his church. So it speaks about two different things coming together together, Because the church isn't Jesus, so difference is necessary. But those two things come together and become one and are united together. So it speaks of covenant, of commitment, it speaks of passion, but it speaks of union. So there's a whole theology of marriage in which human sexuality is supposed to find its place. And God in the Bible, whether we like it or not, says the place for the expression of sexuality is within the covenant of marriage. Now, now in Matthew chapter 15, verses 16 to 20, we read this. I should have checked the time when I started. How am I doing? I've got 10 minutes, haven't I? Matthew chapter 15, um, verse 16. I love this. Jesus always so sensitive and um, caring. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus says, you know, all this purification and ritual law and everything, you're getting all hung up on that and you're misunderstanding. What God cares about is whether you're clean on the inside. And he gives some examples of things that can lead to impurity, if you like, on the inside. And one of those is sexual immorality. Now, this is an all-encompassing term that the people who heard Jesus would have referred back into their mind in their minds to the sexual ethic of the Old Testament. So he doesn't spell it all out for them because they've already got their understanding of God's requirement for sexuality. Now what some people have therefore started to grapple with is well hang on a minute couldn't we say though that Jesus is kind of on a different kind of trajectory to what we were on in the Old Testament. So, for example, in the Old Testament, there are certain provisions for people who own slaves. And yet, today, even though Jesus himself never really um, outright condemned slavery, it wasn't his subject, it wasn't his topic, yet today we've come to the point where we realize that slavery is absolutely abhorrent. We, there's no place for, for slavery in, in our world. We, we completely, as Christians, because we are Christians, condemn the idea of slavery. So just as the church has kind of moved in its position, or some people would argue, well, hang on a minute, um, didn't the church used to say that women couldn't be in leadership because they were supposed to submit, and so therefore they had to be under a man's authority so they couldn't be in leadership? But the church has changed, or at least some of the church has changed its position on that subject and has said, actually, I would say, by the way, that all of the church has changed its position. It's just landed in slightly different places because very few churches still insist on women being silent all the way through uh, a meeting. So all of the church has changed its position, but people have landed in different places. But we would understand that although Paul makes certain interjections into certain issues going on in certain churches, we would argue, well, actually, he was dealing with a specific subject at a specific time, but there's enough other stuff in the Bible that points us in a movement of travel towards all people becoming equally powerful and authoritative in leadership. And that's the position that we take as a church, another subject more than I've got time to go into now. That's the position we take as a church on women in leadership. We say, yeah, women can be empowered in any and every form of leadership because we see a trajectory of how God is moving us towards the full equality of men and women in Scripture. So, people will argue, well, hang on a minute then, couldn't we use the same argument about what's going on with sexuality, and in particular, same-sex attraction and homosexuality, couldn't we argue that actually, although there were these restrictive laws, that our culture is different now, but to use that argument is to misunderstand at two levels. Firstly, we're not changing our position on women in leadership, for example, just to fit better with our culture. Our culture may have challenged us to think carefully about our understanding, but we're basing our interpretation on Scripture and what we see to be principles in Scripture and a trajectory of travel in Scripture. So when we try and apply that argument to homosexuality, the problem is this. On everything to do with sexual ethics, Jesus, when he modified the law, made it more strict and not less strict. Key point for us to understand. At every point, so take the example in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, well, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. Well, I tell you, if you even think about it in your mind, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus didn't come and say I'm going to make the moral, ethical standard less or more liberal or more free or whatever terminology you want to use. Jesus said, actually, no, I'm calling you to a more restricted standard. So if anything, the trajectory is in the opposite direction. So to use a trajectory argument, I would suggest, doesn't really work in this case. Jesus calls people, he still cares about sexual ethics. He still calls sexual immorality to be something that actually is far more important than whether you follow the religious laws and purification rituals. He still lists that, amongst other things, as something that really matters to God. So this Jesus who is loving and accepting uh, and all-embracing, this Jesus who we know for love and acceptance, on, on whose teaching we base our values as a church, love, lovers, loving others, this Jesus who's the perfect demonstration of love is nevertheless still concerned with sexual ethics. In John 15, verse 12, Jesus says, Love one another as I have loved you. We're obviously really keen to love people well, But it seems that Jesus, the perfect expression of love and acceptance, is also prepared to teach on something as controversial as sexual ethics. And the issues that we grapple with may vary to one extent or another, from one culture to another, from one age to another, and yet sexual immorality in one form or another has always been an issue for every society from the very beginning of time. Jesus manifests the perfect love of God as he calls us into God's kingdom. And the thing about that word kingdom is it means God actively and dynamically ruling and reigning. So he loves us so much that he invites us to receive his lordship. He invites us into discipleship. He invites us to follow him and to embrace him his teaching. And somewhat awkwardly for us, as 21st century Christians living in the Western world, Jesus has a sexual ethic. So, here's my question. Why would God care who I sleep with? Why would God care? Jesus clearly we can't just say, well, you know, that was God, that was the Old Testament, Jesus has moved on. Jesus calls people to an even higher sexual ethic than existed in the Old Testament. He never undid any of the specific teachings on sexual ethics. So, why? With all our message of love and acceptance and God empowering people, why would God care? who I sleep with, who you sleep with, or who the people that you're talking with and desperately trying to convince that your faith is loving and kind and not evil and wicked, um, why would God care who they sleep with? Discuss. I thought I would try and just um, answer that question a little bit. And um, I'm going to follow a little bit of an argument that um, someone called Andrew Wilson um, has used. Andrew Wilson is from um, New Frontiers, um, and he got some New Frontiers fans in the house. Um, He he serves the New Frontiers movement as a a theologian. Um, And if you, not now, but if you go on um, YouTube and Google, um, why would God care who I sleep with? Um, he has done a whole talk on this very um, question. I thought it was a, a really good question uh, in terms of the heart of this issue. Why does God even care? So the three kind of arguments, I'll give you a really brief outline of what he says, but you can watch it in more detail. Firstly, um, we all care who people sleep with. All of us. Everyone in this room has an opinion on who people should and shouldn't sleep with, um, Now, whether you're really liberal about that or whether you're really um, conservative about that, everyone in this room thinks there are some things that are off limits. Um, It's interesting, I I used the example earlier from Leviticus 18 and 20 about things like, you know, I don't know, people not sleeping with animals or um, fathers not sleeping with Their daughters, Um, but actually in that same passage of scripture it talks about men not sleeping with women that they're not married to Um, or married people not sleeping with people anyone other than their marriage partner Um, so actually most of you, the vast majority of you in this room who know that I am married to Judith would have a problem if you found out I was sleeping with someone else yeah, you all care You all care who people sleep with. Um, And so, actually, in society, most people would be outraged by that, and there would still be a newspaper scandal. However much sexual ethics might be changing, there'd still be a scandal if I, as the leader of a church, was found to be having a marital affair, which, by the way, I am not. Um, but, But you all care, and society cares society has society has a view that teachers shouldn't be having a sexual relationship with their 17-year-old student even though it's legal yeah but they say no that's an abuse of a position of trust everyone cares so if everyone cares why wouldn't god the ultimate moral being care yeah we all care so why wouldn't god care and this comes down to the crux of it doesn't it do we accept that god is ultimately, the one who gets to decide what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. So firstly, we all care why would God be any different. Secondly, if God does have a timeless ethical standard, that is to say, if God does have absolutes, some things are right and some things are wrong, then wouldn't we expect every culture everywhere in the world and every generation everywhere in the world to clash with god at some point or other yeah wouldn't we expect that so there are some things for us in modern british western 21st century society we clash with god in this whole area of sexual ethics but for other cultures they might clash in other areas, about other things that God says are right or wrong. But for us, the big deal these days is sexuality. But actually, every culture clashes at one point or another. For example, some cultures really, really struggle with the fact that Jesus says, it doesn't matter if your parents don't agree, you should follow me anyway. Some cultures really, really struggle with that, because as much as Scripture says that we should honor our parents, ultimately Jesus says, I will be prepared to divide you against your parents. You have to put me first. Some cultures massively clash with that and would see Christianity as a really big problem because of that cultural stance that it takes. So... If God has timeless ethical standards, then every culture in every generation at some point or another is going to clash with God. It's just this happens to be the big area where we clash and feel uncomfortable. The vast majority, by the way, of the world's population would still not clash with God on his sexual ethics in this area. It's still a relatively small percentage of the population that clashes in as big a way as it does. Our culture disagrees so much on the area of sexuality that it disagrees with the very definition of sex itself. So you've got to understand we're missing each other right at the start because our society sees sex as an enjoyable act that takes place between two consenting adults. Yeah? That's kind of society's definition of sex. A pleasurable act that is, takes place between two consenting adults. So as long as both people are fully consenting um, and both having fun and it's enjoyable, then that's great sex. The Bible doesn't have that definition of sex. God doesn't have that definition of sex. For God, sex is, as we've said, about covenant, about faithfulness, about unity, about surrender to one another, It's about otherness coming together with oneness and demonstrating something amazing about the nature of God's relationship with the church. So when the Bible talks about sex, it's talking already about something very different to what our culture has come to think about as sex. So firstly, we all care, why would God be any different? Secondly, if God has a timeless ethical standard, then it's going to clash with all of us somewhere, and we clash big time with God on sex. And thirdly, why do we care so much about who we sleep with? It's like the big thing of our age. Sex has become, for our society, like a god It's like the highest order of fulfilment in life, and if you're not having sex, then you are a lesser being in our society. I mean, let's face it, they make movies ridiculing people who get to a certain age and haven't had sex yet. And that affects us, even as Christians. We're affected by the films that we watch and the culture that we live in and the, the songs that we listen to. We, we try to convince ourselves that we aren't and that we're shaping our generation and our world around us. But you know, we're warned by scripture, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. It affects us. And our culture, our society constantly preaches a message that says you must have sex. You must have sex. It's your right to have sex. It will make you a better person if you have sex. You will be more confident. You'll be you know, more uh, accomplished and fulfilled. You'll have a better place in society. It's like, what a waste of space anyone is if they're not having sex. It's the message. It's the subliminal message. And so, therefore, of course, if... Jesus would impose any sexual ethic that said, do you know what, unless you're in a very specific set of circumstances, you should deny yourself the right to have sex. If you're not married, you should not have sex with anyone, either the same sex or the opposite sex. That's what Jesus says. That's what the Bible says. If you're not married, then you should abstain. You should lay this down, and it won't make you a lesser being. You see, the Bible has a much higher value of singleness than even the 21st century church in this country has given it credit for. Singleness, you know, we say at the start of weddings, marriage is a way of life that all should honor. We never say, but it is equally true, singleness is a way of life that all should honor. It is not the curse. Now, it's very easy for me to say that um, I got married. I'm just like walking openly with you. I got married um, at age 21. Um, I had my 22nd wedding anniversary um, this month, and so I've now been married longer than I've not been married, and the vast majority of my adult life, I had three years' experience of not being married as an adult, And for at least two of those, I was going out with the person I now am married to. So I accept I don't have that experience. I don't have that. I don't know what it's like. But I do know it should be a whole lot better than it is to be single in the church. And so let me say again, if you've had a difficult and painful experience of being single if you've had a lonely experience of being single, if you've ever felt like the message you received, either spoken or otherwise, was that somehow as a single person you were slightly less than everybody else, I am sorry. That's not what we believe and it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. And so to choose singleness for whatever reason as a discipleship choice, To say, for whatever reason, I'm not able to be in a marriage relationship. There can be all kinds of reasons why it's not possible for us to be in a marriage relationship. To choose to say, I lay down the right to have sex. I choose to follow Jesus who calls us to live in such a way that the only place for sexual expression is in marriage. I lay that down. What about the fact that some people would say, well, I am attracted to people of the same sex. I feel like I've always been that way. I didn't, like, go out and read certain books. I don't think it was anything to do with the way I was parented. I don't think it was you know, I just feel like that's the way I've always been from the very beginning when I first started becoming aware of sexual attraction. um, If you're a guy, then, you know, the guys around me started talking about girls, and I never related to it because I was kind of noticing guys. Or if you're a girl, the other way around. What about people that experience that attraction? Well, scientists disagree, and the fact is it's hugely complex, and probably most people at the end of the day would acknowledge that there are a whole variety of factors, both to do with our genetic makeup and to do with our environment. But whether it's one way or the other, um, it's a hugely complicated issue why people end up experiencing same-sex attraction. But the fact is, even if someone is entirely born, entirely as a result of their kind of genetic makeup and The fact is, the way we're born doesn't prove what God calls us to in terms of discipleship. All of us experience all kinds of desires that we would say just because we naturally experience those desires doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to accept certain restrictions on our lives in order to follow Him faithfully. And So this is a discipleship issue. And so in the area of sexuality and sexual ethics, Jesus makes demands on all of us, on all of us, to accept a view of sex that sees it as an expression of covenant faithfulness, of the union of difference, that expresses something of God himself, that strengthens a marriage, that yes, is enjoyable, that yes, is about procreation as well, but entirely within that context of marriage. So what we need in the church then, what we need in the church is an atmosphere where we are willing to support one another in all areas of discipleship. An atmosphere where we can talk honestly about the different kinds of struggles that all of us have. In one way or another, every single person in this room has struggled to live faithfully as a discipleship, as a disciple of Jesus, in one way or another. All of us, me included, senior leader of the church, I have experienced times where I've struggled to walk faithfully as a disciple of Jesus. We all have. We've all messed up. We've all got it wrong. What's important is that we own that, but that we own a commitment and a desire to support one another to walk faithfully in discipleship with Jesus, where we can be real, where we can accept the fact that one person experiences a certain desire does not make them any more, um, you know, inferior than anybody else in the church. I long for the day when people can talk openly and honestly about the fact of experiencing same-sex attraction and not feel guilty, condemned, or shameful. That doesn't mean, that kind of love and acceptance doesn't mean that we have to say that Jesus doesn't call us to a certain ethical standard. It means that we need to be loving and supportive and welcoming and accepting in the way that we do that, recognizing that all of us experience challenges in one way or another. And we need to challenge ourselves on all areas of discipleship just as much as any other. Because at the end of the day, there isn't a whole load about this subject in here because it's not the most important thing that God wants to speak into in our lives. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care who I sleep with. It just means that God is concerned about the state of our hearts before him far more than he's concerned about anything else, which is why I hope none of you have ever been stopped on your way in to one of our meetings and asked, who did you sleep with last night? God cares about the state of our hearts before him. And as we journey with him faithfully in discipleship, he will challenge us in different areas. We believe he does have a sexual ethic to which we should aspire to live up to together. And we believe we should support one another faithfully in that. But we also believe there needs to be a whole lot more love, acceptance, and affirmation to support one another as we go after that. So that we are not a culture of shame, so that we're not a culture of attacking one another or blaming one another, but we're a culture of supporting one another, and in particular, we must do better. Whether the reasons for singleness are because of same-sex attraction and choosing not to fulfill that, or whether it's because of other reasons um, of needing to embrace a single lifestyle, or whether it's because of not being in that position out of choice, but finding ourselves in that position, we need to do better at supporting and honoring singleness amongst us as a church so that not having sex does not become the biggest curse, does not imply anyone is less fulfilled, that someone can be totally and completely fulfilled in God and never have sex in their entire life. Amen?